number of years ago, a survey was taken that revealed that almost 70% of the American public believes in Satan. However, many of these same people who say they believe in a personal devil simply don't take him seriously. He's not on their radar. They don't think about that. They are rather indifferent to his evil activities. And the question is, why don't they take him seriously? Well, R.C. Sproul has a fascinating take on this. Dr. Sproul wrote this in one of his books. He said, one possible reason for this is because he, meaning Satan, has been caricatured as a grotesque character in a red suit and a long tail with pitchfork and horns. From where did this popular image come? It came from the Middle Ages when the church was acutely conscious of the reality of Satan and they wanted to ward off his influence. They said that the point of vulnerability of Satan was his pride. So in order to attack his pride, they invented wild caricatures of him, making him look ludicrous. This was all done to insult Satan. Now, today, frankly, no one thinks about insulting Satan in order to ward off his evil influences. However, what's been left over from the Middle Ages is this ridiculous image of the devil as a little man who runs around in a red outfit with horns and a tail that just nobody takes seriously because he looks so silly. Who would take him seriously? But we should. We should take the devil very seriously because the Bible makes much of him. The Bible takes him seriously. The Bible tells us that Satan is an angel who was created by God in his original state. His name was Lucifer, which simply means the shining one, shining person, shining one. The Old Testament book of Ezekiel in chapter 28 reveals some important truths about Lucifer, such as he was created as the highest and the greatest of all angels, perfect in nature, full of wisdom, flawless in angelic beauty. In this Ezekiel passage, he's called the anointed cherub who covers, meaning that he originally held an exalted position of angelic authority. He was covering or guarding the very throne of God himself. But as great and as privileged as he was, Ezekiel tells us that Lucifer chose to rebel against God. Now, without explaining how a perfect angel can do that, can choose to revolt against God, nevertheless, we are told by Ezekiel why Lucifer rebelled. It's because we read these words in Ezekiel 28, verse 17. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. In other words, Lucifer's sin was pride, a preoccupation with himself, with his beauty, with his majesty, with his splendor. We're given more information about the specifics of the devil's rebellion in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 13 and 14, where we read that five times Lucifer said, I will, as he asserted, his arrogance and his independence from God. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. So he had this defiance, this I will five times. I will do this no matter what you say, God. I am my own God. But Lucifer didn't defy God alone. The Bible says that when he rebelled against 
the Lord, a large number of other angels joined him. Revelation chapter 12 verse 4 refers to one-third, one-third of the angels following him in his revolt against the Lord. And these angels who chose to oppose God and serve Satan, they are known in the New Testament as demons. And the New Testament, frankly, is just filled with many references to demons, especially in relation to Jesus and his earthly ministry. And one of those places is the focus of our study today. So I invite you to look at Luke chapter 8, and I want to read to you verses 26 through 39. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee, And when he came out onto the land, he was met by a man from the city who was possessed with demons and who had not put on any clothing for a long time and was not living in a house, but in the tombs. Seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, what business do we have with each other, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For it had seized him many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard, and yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. And Jesus asked him, what's your name? He said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. They were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. Now there was a herd of many swine feeding there on the mountain, and the demons implored him to permit them to enter the swine. And he gave them permission. And the demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep banks into the lake and was drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country. The people went to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demon had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they became frightened. Those who had seen it reported to them how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. And all the people of the country of the Gerasenes and the surrounding district asked him to leave them, for they were gripped with great fear. And he got into a boat and returned. But the man from whom the demon had gone out was begging him that he might accompany him, but he sent him away, saying, return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. So he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Now, I realize that while these verses give us a number of insights into demons and satanic activity, it's really important to understand that Luke's primary purpose in revealing this incident, and it's a rather unusual, somewhat bizarre story, But Luke's purpose is to supply convincing evidence of Christ's divine authority. And you can see this easily by the way that Luke presents his material. As you'll recall from our previous study in Luke a couple of weeks ago, Jesus had miraculously calmed a very violent hurricane-like storm on the Sea of Galilee, revealing his deity and his divine authority over nature. And then later in this chapter, Luke will tell us about Jesus healing a woman who had been quite ill for years, as well as telling us about Jesus raising a young girl to life who had recently died. And in that 
case, in those two cases, his divine authority is revealed over disease and death. So that's what Luke's doing. He's revealing the divine authority of Christ and sandwiched between these two sections asserting Christ's divine authority over nature and disease. Luke, now in this story, reveals Christ's divine authority over Satan and demons by telling us about the time that Jesus cast out not just one, but as we'll learn in this story, many evil spirits from a demon-possessed man and sending those demons into a herd of pigs who then plunge to their deaths into the Sea of Galilee. And unlike the previous incident about calming the sea, notice that this incident, this story is told to us by Luke. He doesn't mention anything about the disciples. They're not mentioned once in this story, in these verses, though they certainly were with Jesus and they observed his confrontation with these demons, they're not referred to one time in the story. And the reason for this is because the focus of the story is intended by Luke is entirely on Jesus and who he is. Remember how our last passage ended. After Jesus miraculously stilled the storm and the waves and the winds, and the disciples asked a very important question in verse 25. They said, who then is this that he commands even the winds and water and they obey him? Well, in presenting Christ's confrontation with the demons, Luke answers that very question by showing us that Jesus is not a mere man. He's the divine son of God who even demons are subject to, who even demons must obey. Now, although the focus of this passage, as I said, it's on Jesus, it certainly does have a great deal to say about demons in relation to human beings, which does raise a number of questions, perhaps in, in your mind, as you go through this. And, and questions about demon possession, such as, what does it mean to be demon possessed? And does demon possession take place today, or is it simply an ancient phenomenon? And why do demons even want to possess humans? And why, when they're on the verge of being cast out of humans, did these demons plead with Jesus to send them into a herd of swine? Now, as we go through these verses, we'll address each of these issues about demons, but it's important that you not miss the primary point of the passage, which is to declare to us that Jesus has divine authority over Satan, over demons, over hell itself, the powers of darkness. And that's a good thing. That's, in fact, it's a great thing that he does because if he did not have power over Satan in the realm of darkness, then all of us would be in big trouble. You see, Christ's authority to command demons to do what he sovereignly determines rather than let them do whatever they want to do, it's not only an interesting Bible story, it's an extremely relevant truth for us today. And I'll tell you why. First of all, because Jesus' power over the entire supernatural realm of darkness, those who believe in him, those who have come to faith in Christ, have been set free. Not only from your sin, but from the bondage of Satan. Here's what we read in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. For he rescued us, that is believers, he rescued us, he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. So prior to your conversion, whether you realized it or not, whether you were conscious of this 
or not, even if you did not believe in a personal devil, you were in bondage to him. I was in bondage to him. So that we were compelled to live a life of self-focused evil and rebellion towards God. The way Paul puts it in Ephesians 2 is you were living in the lusts of your flesh and indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind because this is how Satan wanted you to live as you walked according to the course of this world which is under his control. And you could do nothing about it. Absolutely nothing about it since you were in bondage. You were a slave to him. But you've been set free, praise God, from that bondage. You're no longer in bondage if you know Christ. That's why Jesus said, if the Son shall set you free, you will be free indeed. In addition, because Christ is more powerful than Satan, not only have you been set free from that bondage, but you can now live a life of victory in your daily life over the devil's wicked temptations to sin. Because Paul tells us in Ephesians 6.10, finally, he says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes or the wiles or the strategies or the methodology of the devil. So God has given you, through his word, every spiritual resource to say no to the devil's solicitations to do evil. And because Jesus is more powerful than Satan, you never have to fear that when you come to the end of your life, if you know Christ, that Satan somehow has the power to cast you into hell. That will never happen. Paul wrote this to the Romans in Romans chapter 8, verses 35 and on. He said, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword just as it is written for your sake we are being put to death all day long we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us and now Paul explains why we conquer for I am convinced and if Paul's convinced then I'm convinced and you should be convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, and Satan is an angel, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Praise God, you will never, if you know Christ, never go to hell. Satan does not have that kind of power. So in presenting the story of Christ's confrontation with the demons who inhabited this poor man, Luke reveals Christ's divine power over the realm of darkness by this. He gives us three proofs that Christ has authority over demons, with the first proof being this. He has the authority to judge demons. We break in at verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee, meaning the district of Galilee. Having told us about Jesus and his disciples being caught up in this terrible storm as they sailed towards the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, and then how Jesus calmed that storm, Luke now continues his story, his narrative, by telling us what happened next. He says that they resumed they resumed their journey on the sea, sailing to an area known as the country of the Gerasenes, which was opposite the region of Galilee. In other words, he's saying that they now arrived at their destination on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. They sailed originally from the northwest side of the town of Capernaum, and now they're 
They're on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. Now Luke refers to their location as the country of the Gerasenes, so called after the name of a small village in that area known as Gerasa. However, if you've ever read Matthew's accounts of the same incident, you'll recall that he refers to this area as the country of the Gadarenes, so-called because of a major town, probably the capital town, in that area called Gadara. So both accounts are accurate, they just use different names to identify the exact same location. But regardless of the specific names of this place, this was part of a larger district, a larger region known as the Decapolis, a word that simply means 10 cities, Deca for 10. Because this region was made up of 10 independent cities, didn't really belong to Israel. It was 10 independent cities. And although some Jewish people lived in the Decapolis, Gentiles predominantly resided in this area, which then helps us to understand why in the world there were so many pigs in this region, because pigs would not have been raised by observant Jews, since a pig is an unclean, non-kosher animal, forbidden by Jewish people even to touch, let alone eat. And so having arrived in the area of the Gerasenes, Luke proceeds to tell us what happened when Jesus stepped out of the boat and onto land. Verse 27. And when he came out onto the land, he was met by a man from the city who was possessed with demons and who had not put on any clothing for a long time and was not living in a house but in the tombs. Now Luke tells us that as soon as Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a man from the city who was demon-possessed. Now, Matthew, in his accounts of this incident, tells us that there were actually two demon-possessed men, while Luke only mentions one. So, is this a contradiction in the Bible? Not at all. Luke doesn't say that only one demon man, a demon-possessed man, met Jesus, and no more. There was only one, and that's it. No, he doesn't say that. He just chose to mention one of the men and not the other. Why? Well, we're not told, but the most likely explanation is that he chose to focus on the one who did most of the talking, the one who was more vocal, the the more dominant of the two. That's the best explanation. But more important than how many demon-possessed men were there is to understand what the Bible means when it states that someone is possessed by a demon or by demons. So listen carefully. When scripture says that an individual is demon-possessed, It means that a demon, or in this case, as we'll see many demons, inhabit this person's body and they've gained control over his life. This is not simply oppression. This is not simply wrestling with the devil. Every believer has had that. This is where a demon actually controls you, lives inside of you, dominates you. You don't have the power to resist John MacArthur in his commentary on Luke describes demon possession as it is presented in the New Testament. He writes, a demon-possessed individual was indwelt, controlled, and tormented by the demon. The repeated phrases entered him, cast out, came out, come out, and coming out indicate that demons indwell their victims. Demon possession is a supernatural phenomenon, not explicable in psychological or physical terms. A demon-possessed individual refers to someone indwelt and controlled by a demon or demons to the point that he cannot successfully resist. 
not to the general influence demons have in promoting false doctrine, false worship, immorality, and attitudes of jealousy, divisiveness, and pride. It should be noted, too, that on no occasion when Jesus delivered an individual from demon possession was there a reference to forgiveness of sins. Nor did all those delivered repent and believe. The demon-possessed individuals whom Jesus delivered were not necessarily any more wicked than other sinners. The emphasis is on Jesus' power over the demons, not on the individuals being delivered. But after Jesus and the apostles passed from the scene, the only way to be delivered from demons is through saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, folks, the New Testament gives a number of examples of individuals who were possessed by demons in the days of Jesus. We know that. If you've read the New Testament, you clearly see that. But a valid question to ask is this. Is demon possession something that exists today? And if so, is this taking place in our modern cultures and countries and and cities? The answer to the first part of this question, does demon possession exist today, is yes, it absolutely does. Demons continue to possess individuals today, as many missionaries around the world can certainly attest because they've had confrontations with demons. And in answer to the second part of this question, does demon possession exist in modern high-tech cultures and countries, the answer to that question is also yes. Contrary to what many people might assume, demon possession isn't something that happens only to people living in remote jungle areas. It also happens to people who live in contemporary and advanced cities. One Bible scholar addressing this issue of demon possession today said this. He said, throughout history, including modern times, that particular aspect of Satan's activity seems to appear more commonly in rural and unsophisticated areas than in sophisticated urban society. It is also more common where animalistic religion and its accompanying fear and worship of evil spirits are strong. In more advanced societies, a person who is seriously deranged, note this, by demons is likely to be considered insane and placed in a mental institution, and it's seems certain that many people who are diagnosed as mentally ill are actually demonized. He's not saying that all who are mentally ill and diagnosis are, but certainly some are, though they're not recognized as demon-possessed. Now, concerning this particular man, this demon-possessed man whom Jesus encountered on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, Luke describes him as a man who at one time lived in a town. But he was now banished, banished from that town, so that instead of dwelling in a house, he was now dwelling amongst dead corpses in the tombs far removed from people. In addition, the demons controlling him compelled him to do the bizarre thing of removing all of his clothes so that he was naked. Not only was this morally shameful behavior, but it was cruel. It was cruel to this man because this meant that this man had to endure all kinds of weather conditions without the protection of any clothing. Furthermore, according to Mark's accounts of this incident, Mark chapter 5, the demons had given this man abnormal supernatural strength and power so that a chain could no longer bind him. So apparently, In the past, individuals were able to subdue him and put him in chains, but the demons just continued to give him more and more physical strength until he was able to just break those chains. And now, 
No one was able to subdue him anymore. And in addition to the physical threat he posed to others, we also read in Mark's account of this incident that this man actually inflicted pain upon himself. Mark chapter 5 verse 5 tells us constantly night and day he was screaming amongst the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. In other words, most of his time was spent ranting and and raving like a lunatic with screams that would echo through the hills while he repeatedly cut himself with stones. So imagine in your mind what a pathetic sight this man really was. He was living in dirty caves with dead men's bones and filthy animals being driven by demons to the hills and mountains where he would howl day and night as he gashed the flesh of his naked body with the sharp edges of broken stones. How how pathetic is that? Ken Hughes tries to capture all of this, the degradation, the misery that these demons had inflicted upon this poor guy. And here's how Ken Hughes describes the situation. He said, speaking of not only one man, but two men. He said, these poor naked men were a mass of bleeding lacerations, scabs, infections, and scar tissue, living in a delirium of pain and masochistic displeasure. They were wild, naked, unkept, and ill, and as a result, all were against them. Little children fled at their approach. In their lucid moments, they surely realized how repulsive, unloved, and unwelcome they were. They were dehumanized, animalized, marginalized, and both frightening and fearful. What incredible misery. Now, you may wonder why demons would do this to these men. Why do demons even want to inhabit people and drive them to such depths of misery and degradation. I mean, why do they even want to do this? Listen closely. Satan's goal has always been to destroy and to degrade man. Jesus said in John chapter 10 concerning the thief who threatens the sheep, which is a reference to Satan. He's the thief. He said that the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy And the reason for this is because, note this, man has been created in the image and likeness of God. And even though that image has been tainted by the fall of man and our own personal sin, God's likeness can still be seen in our personalities and our normal human behavior. And such activities as the ability to show love and compassion, making wise and rational decisions, seeking truth, desiring justice, things like that. These are the kinds of behavior that come through our personalities and they elevate us above animals and they reflect God's glory and image in us. And Satan hates it. Why? Because he hates God. Therefore, his goal is to destroy and distort the image of God in human beings. And one of his methods to do this, certainly not the only one, is through demon possession. You see, through demonization, another word for demon possession, Satan literally destroys people and their personalities so that they are reduced to acting like crazed animals. Listen, it is no coincidence that along with the rise of Satanism, occultism, and New Age thinking, there is an incredible rise in drug abuse, pornography, and obscenity, and they all accomplish the same thing. They dehumanize you by destroying your God-given personality and making you act more like a wild animal than a human being, whether it be through violence, an addiction, some deviant sexual behavior, or some type of harmful obsession. This is all the doing of the evil one 
of Satan as he seeks to destroy anything in you that reflects the likeness of God. So be careful that you don't expose yourself to that kind of stuff. You don't want to trifle with that. It's exactly this dehumanization. That's exactly what the devil had accomplished. And these men living in the country of the Gerasenes, Satan had sent some demons to inhabit this man in order to destroy any visage of God's image in him. But, but now Jesus has come on the scene. He's come to the area where this demon-possessed man dwelt and the demons inside of him are immediately threatened by our Lord's presence. And as Luke continues, he tells us what they said to Jesus when they saw him coming. Verse 28, the beginning of verse 28. Seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, what business do we have with each other, Jesus, son of the most high God? Now, it's very likely that when this demon-possessed man noticed that a boat had arrived with a number of men pulling up to the shore, it's very likely that he started running towards them with the intent of assaulting them, of attacking them. And I say that because Matthew tells us that this man was exceedingly violent. He wasn't just strong. He was violent in his strength so that he attacked anyone who tried to pass on the road. And no doubt that's what he was planning to do to the occupants of these fishing boats that had just pulled up to land. He wanted to attack them. But then, as Luke tells us, he sees their leader emerging from one of the boats. And recognizing that this was Jesus, the demon within this man makes him immediately fall to the ground in submission while crying out in a loud voice, which means that he started screaming, he started shrieking at Jesus. And what this demon was shrieking was a question directed at the Lord. He asked, what business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In other words, what do you want with us, Jesus, Son of God? Now, it may surprise you to learn that these demons knew who Jesus was and that he was the Son of God, meaning that he was deity, but it really should not surprise you, and I'll tell you why. You see, this may have been the first time these demons had seen God in human form, but before they joined Satan's rebellion, all angels, every one of them, knew each member of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And even now, as fallen spirits, they recognize Christ's spirit. As one writer put it, he said they knew intuitively that they were standing in the presence of the Son of God. But this demon knew more than Christ's identity. He also knew that God had appointed a specific time when demons would be tormented in eternal judgment for their wickedness. And therefore, as this demon just continued screaming at Jesus, he makes a request of him, which Luke records for us at the end of verse 28. I beg you, do not torment me. Now, Matthew, in his account, adds something that helps to explain this demon's request and why he was shrieking at Jesus. Matthew reveals that the demon asked Jesus, and this is a fuller account, have you come here to torment us before the appointed time? You see, this demon understood that a specific time, at a specific time in the future, God had destined them for the tormenting judgment of hell, the lake of fire. The Bible says that at the end of the seven-year tribulation period, Satan, and we would assume all demons with Satan, will be bound in a prison known as the abyss. The abyss is a bottomless pit, a dungeon. 
for a thousand years. Then after the thousand year reign of Christ on earth, they'll be released for a brief time and then thrown into the lake of fire where they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's what Revelation chapter 20 verse 10 says. Now because demons, unlike most people, they actually, you know, believe the Bible. They know what a horrible, tormenting judgment awaits them in the future. See, demons actually have great theology. They have sound, excellent theology, excellent doctrine, but only in the sense that they recognize the truth. They don't love the truth. They don't embrace the truth. They don't obey the truth. They just know it. Know it to be truth. James 2.19 says, You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe, and they shudder. They tremble. Demons know the truth about God. They know that he exists and therefore they shudder, meaning that they're terrified, they're trembling because they understand that judgment awaits them for their rebellion against God. But the question that this particular demon on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee puts at Jesus that day is, have you decided to take away our freedom to roam and possess men now so that we will be tormented before the scheduled final judgment. That's what he's asking. Now, folks, the important thing to see in this encounter between Jesus and this screaming, shrieking demon is that as strong and as powerful as demons are, so powerful that they are able to reduce men created in the image of God to behave like wild, frenzied animals, this demon recognized that Jesus had absolute divine authority over him. He knew that Jesus was his judge and that Jesus could do to him and with him whatever he wanted to do to him and with him. If he wants to cast him out of this man and begin his torment right now, he can do it. That's what the demon recognizes. This is the demon's acknowledgement of Christ's absolute sovereignty as the son of the most high God, as God himself. Listen, if Christ has the authority as the one who will judge demons because of their rebellion, and he does, then understand that he certainly has the authority to judge people for their rebellion too, and he will. As James 2.19 says again, the demons shudder because they know what awaits them, hell. And you know what? They shudder because they know they can't do anything about it. Demons cannot repent. There is no salvation for demons. They are locked in their evil. But we can repent We can turn to Christ, we can be delivered, we can be saved, we can be forgiven of our sin so that we do escape the horrors of hell. So I implore you, make sure that you know Christ, that you have indeed repented, turned from your sin and turned to the Savior and called upon him to save your soul because once you die, you will have no more opportunity to be saved. Then it's too late. Hell is real. Make sure you know Christ. So the first proof of Christ's authority over demons is that he is the authority to judge them. But as Luke continues unfolding this incident, he gives us a second proof of Christ's authority over demons, which is he has the authority to cast them out of men. Verse 29, for he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had seized him many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard, and yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Now, with these words, 
Luke actually helps us to understand why this demon was pleading with Jesus not to torment him with judgment at this particular time. It was because Jesus has just commanded the demon to depart out of the man. And why did Jesus command this evil spirit to come out of this poor guy? Well, notice that Luke gives the reason by telling us how this demon had so cruelly tortured and tormented this poor man. He says, for it, and by it he means the demon, had seized him many times and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard and yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. In other words, this demon had tormented this man by working him into a wild frenzy so that the people in the town had tried to restrain him with chains, but by his demonic supernatural strength, he would break those chains and the demon would then drive him into the wilderness alone, isolated, living amongst dead people in the tombs. Now note this, what Luke is telling us by reporting how this man was tortured, tormented by the demon is the reason Jesus commanded this wicked demon to depart from this man. It's because knowing the pain and suffering that this man had endured, the Lord was moved with pity for him. In other words, his heart of love, his heart of compassion, his heart of kindness went out to this man for the unimaginable pain and misery he had been forced to endure at the hands of this cruel and wicked demon. And Jesus decided that's enough. He decided he wasn't going to let this continue anymore. And so out of his loving kindness, he commands this demon, depart. And then Luke tells us that Jesus asked this poor demon-possessed man, he asked him a question. Verse 30, Jesus asked him, what's your name? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered him. Now addressing the man, Jesus asked him what his name was. But it was the demon living inside of the man who actually answered, saying that his name was Legion, because many demons had entered him. Now, by answering Legion, this demon wasn't actually giving Jesus his name, but rather he was telling him that he was just one of many demons indwelling this man. You see, the word Legion is a reference to a unit of Roman soldiers, which could be anywhere up to 6,000 men. Could be less, but could be anywhere up to 6,000 men. So what we have here then, folks, is a vast army of militant, evil spirits living inside of this one man, unmercifully tormenting and torturing him. Now, Luke doesn't tell us why Jesus asked this man his name, but most likely it was for the sake of the Lord's disciples. I told you that they're not mentioned in these verses, but they were certainly there. They were watching all of this unfold. And it's very likely that Jesus asked the man his name knowing how he would answer because he wants the disciples to understand the kind of authority he had, not simply to cast a single demon from a man, but the authority that only God has, which is to cast a multitude of demons from a man. And so what's happening here is that the Lord is commanding all these demons to just depart from this man while they're pleading with him and they're shrieking, howling, screaming voices not to send them to the dungeon of the abyss, which is what we read in verse 31. They were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. And so out of terror, out of desperation, these evil, wicked spirits, they come up with a suggestion, an alternative plan of action. 
Instead of sending them into the prison of the abyss, they suggest to Jesus that he send them into a herd of pigs who were feeding nearby. Notice what we read as Luke continues in verse 32. Now there was a herd of many swine feeding there on the mountain and the demons implored him to permit them to enter the swine and he gave them permission. Now why they wanted Jesus to send them into the pigs, we're not told. So all we can do at this point is speculate. It may be because they thought that Jesus, being Jewish, wouldn't care if they inhabited pigs, since pigs were unclean, non-kosher animals, forbidden to be eaten, and as I told you earlier, even touched by Jewish people. And they wanted to inhabit these pigs in order to continue doing destruction in the physical realm. That's where demons work, in the physical realm. Or, a more plausible explanation is that the demons thought that if they inhabited and then killed the pigs, that their owners, being infuriated at the loss of their livelihood, would rise up against Jesus and just kill him. So whatever the reason was for these demons to make such a bizarre request of Jesus, we know that it was certainly motivated by evil, wicked intentions, because that's all demons can do. And Jesus granted their request. According to the end of verse 32, we read, and he gave them permission. And folks, that's significant. Because without his permission, these demons could not have carried out his plan. And that really ought to encourage you if you're a believer in Christ. Because it affirms the truth that Satan and demons are unable to do anything in your life unless Jesus allows them to. You're not at the mercy of the evil one. You don't have to walk through life being afraid that the devil is going to attack you. Your life is under the sovereign control of God who is wise and good and he alone, he alone determines what happens in your life, not Satan. And in this case, having commanded them to depart from this man, Jesus allowed them then to enter into this herd of pigs where they would continue to carry on their work of misery and destruction as we read in verse 33. And the demons came out of the man and entered the swine and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. Now, according to Matthew's account of the same incident, Jesus didn't simply give them permission to enter the swine. He actually commanded them to leave the man and enter the pigs by just saying one word. In Matthew's gospel, Matthew 8.32, the word is just go. It's a command, go. So we read that at Christ's command, a multitude of demons depart from the two men, probably thousands of them. And I say that because Mark says in his gospel account, there were 2,000 pigs. So there must have been thousands of these demons. And these demons enter these pigs and the pigs immediately, their reaction was to rush down the steep bank into the Sea of Galilee and they're all drowned. Now, whether the demons directed the pigs to plunge to their deaths or this was the pigs just frantic response to being inhabited by demons, we're not told. But what we do know from this incident is that Jesus has complete authority over demons to the point that he commands them to do whatever he wants them to do. And he and he alone, note this, he and he alone has the power to cast out demons. We don't. Which means that exorcism is not something that any of us should be involved in. In the early days of the church, the Lord gave his apostles the power to cast out demons, but that was a unique 
sign gift that authenticated them as Christ's true representatives. His word to us, our Lord's word to us about dealing with Satan and demons is not to cast them out. There is no command in the New Testament that we are to cast out demons, but his word to us is be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the full armor of God in order to be able to stand against the devil. However, there were many Jewish people in Christ's day who did not understand the power of Satan and they thought that they could cast out demons from people, but they couldn't because they lacked God's power. And that's why we read these words in Acts chapter 19, starting at verse 13. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches, seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? That's something you never want to hear from a demon. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them, overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. No wonder when the Jewish people saw Christ's success in casting out demons, they said, according to Mark chapter 1, verse 27, who is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. They had never seen anything like this because no one but Christ has this kind of power and authority. Same is true today. No one but Christ has power over demons. They must obey him. Why? Because he is the ultimate sovereign one. He is God. The previous night he stopped the raging sea with one word and now here with one word demons just flee at his command. Only God could have that kind of power and authority. But as great as Christ's power over demons is, some people, some people have read this story over the years and they've been troubled by it. Very troubled by the fact that Jesus would allow so many animals to be killed because this is what some hellish demons requested. So if you're bothered by this, here are a few things to help you, things you can keep in mind. For one thing, the pigs were going to be killed anyway. It's not like they were being raised to become cuddly household pets. (laughs) Second, if the owners were Jewish, and that is a possibility, then they were wrong to be raising them, and this would have sent a strong message to them, don't mess and violate with the law of Moses. Don't do this. Third, this demon-possessed man created in the image of God, was more important than 2,000 pigs who were being raised only to be slaughtered. So perhaps that helps. Now, all these reasons for letting these pigs die, I think they're very valid. But the primary reason that Jesus accommodated this very odd request from these demons to be sent into the pigs was to demonstrate his power over Satan by a very dramatic, very visual, very visible demonstration that demons really had departed from this man. It wasn't just his word for it. People saw it. And that thought leads us to one more proof of Christ's authority over demons. We've already seen his authority to judge them and we've seen his authority to cast them out of men. Now we see he has authority to restore lives once shattered by demons, verses 34 and 35. 
When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they ran away and reported in the city and out in the country. The people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they became frightened. Now Luke tells us that when the men who were tending these pigs saw what had happened to their animals, they just ran off. They ran off into the city meaning the town and the countryside, to tell everyone it had just transpired. And when the people from their own town came with them back to the spot where Jesus was, Matthew says, by the way, the whole town came back, these people had the shock of their lives because they saw the man who they knew. He had been at one time in the grip of all these demons. They saw him now in his right mind, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, self-controlled, fully clothed, Listen, only God could do a miracle like this. Only God could restore a life that had been destroyed by Satan. Only God could return a man to sanity from the insanity of being demon-possessed. But that's exactly what Jesus does when he saves any individual from hell. You don't have to be demon-possessed to experience his restoration. He transfers us from the kingdom of darkness to his own kingdom of light. He transforms us from the wicked, self-indulgent, devilish lives we once led to those who now love him, those who now desire to please him, those who want to honor him. This is the kind of authority Christ has. And he can do this in your life by the power of the gospel. Listen, no matter how deep in sin you are, no matter how far you have descended into the darkness of Satan's domain, No matter how much the devil has destroyed and shattered your life, I want you to know there is hope for you because Jesus can transform you. He can restore you. And he'll do this when you repent of your sin and you turn to him trusting him for salvation. This is what Christ does. He forgives the chief of sinners and restores our broken lives. It doesn't matter how scarred you are. Jesus can restore you into something that's beautiful and precious in his sight. Listen to these words from the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians, reminding them of how Jesus had transformed their once broken lives. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now watch this. Such, he says, were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Listen, he did this for these people in their wickedness, and he can do this for you. That is the hope of Christ, the hope of the gospel. Now, one would think that the townspeople, upon seeing this miraculous transformation of this once demon-possessed man, you would think that they would be rejoicing, jumping up and down, celebrating, being thrilled for him, and even desire that Christ would transform them. Amazingly, that wasn't the case. Instead of rejoicing at this miracle, we read that they became frightened. In other words, they were terrified. And why were they terrified? Well, Luke tells us why. In the very next verse, verse 36, those who had seen it reported to them how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. 
The people were frightened because they had been told how this demon-possessed man had come to be made whole, and it just terrified them. It petrified them. And it terrified them because they realized that in Jesus, they were in the presence of someone who was not only more powerful than anyone else they had ever encountered, but someone who was holy and pure and righteous. And they knew that they were not. And it terrified them. In other words, they were terrified because he was powerful and holy and they were sinful and they knew they were sinful. They were so scared that verse 37 tells us that they actually asked Jesus to depart from them. And all the people of the country of the Gerasenes and the surrounding districts asked him to leave them for they were gripped with great fear and he got into a boat and returned. Instead of asking Jesus to stay, stay here, heal us, deliver us from our sin, heal our loved ones, cast out more demons. No, the people of this area tragically asked him to leave them, depart, move on Jesus from our district because they were gripped with fear. Knowing how sinful they were, they were uncomfortable in the presence of Christ and they felt threatened by his power and his holiness. You see, these people had caught a glimpse of Christ's power to change a man, and they didn't want that kind of power changing them. They understood that someone who has the power to deliver a man from thousands of demons also has the power to deliver anyone else he chooses to deliver, and they didn't want Jesus interfering with their lives, and so they just said, leave. Isn't that exactly the way most people react to Christ today? Seeing how Jesus, for example, someone perhaps in your family, someone who's a relative, a friend, sees how Jesus has so transformed you, they become very uncomfortable. They're uncomfortable around you. They're uncomfortable about you speaking about Christ because they love their sin. They want to continue in their sin. And they don't want the Lord to disrupt their lives. So they send Jesus away by saying, I don't want to hear about it anymore. I don't want you to talk about it anymore. I'm not comfortable talking about this. Listen, be careful about sending Christ away. If the Lord's been tugging at your heart, convicting you of your sin, every time you come to church, you hear a message from the Bible and the gospel, and he convicts you of your sin, and you know you're not saved, and you know you need salvation, don't send him away again. Why? Because he just might depart. And stop tugging at your heart to accept him as your Lord and Savior. That's exactly what he did with these townspeople in this area. They asked him to leave and Luke said that he got into the boat and returned to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He didn't argue with them. He didn't say, no, 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 you need me here. They said, leave and he left. But even in doing this, Jesus was still so gracious, gracious enough to leave these people with a witness to the gospel so that they could continue to hear the truth. Notice what we read in the last two and final verses of this section, verses 38 and 39. But the man from whom the demons had gone out was begging him that he might accompany him, but he sent him away, saying, return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. So he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things, now notice, not God has done, but Jesus has done, because Jesus is God. So Luke tells us that the man from whom all these demons had been cast out, he was just pleading with Jesus to accompany him. Let me travel with you, and we can understand that. 
But Jesus said that he wanted him to return to his home and tell others what great things God has done for him. That's exactly what this man did. He became, note this, a missionary to the people of that area, telling others what great things Jesus had done for him. And as Mark says in his account of the story, everyone marveled. So even though Jesus left this area, he made sure that there was a gospel witness to proclaim the truth to them. Folks, that's grace. That's mercy. But still, how sad that when these people came face to face with God and saw such a vivid display of his power to restore a life that had once been so shattered by the devil, how sad that they just asked him to leave because they didn't want him to transform their lives. That doesn't have to be the case with you. You may not be demon-possessed, but if you don't know Christ, then you are under the control of Satan, whether you realize it or not. You're in the domain of darkness. You're in the realm of the evil one. You may have some filthy behavior that you're ashamed of, and you've lost all hope of changing, but even though you cannot change yourself, Christ can change you. He has that kind of power. He who has the power to calm the sea and the power to cast out demons, he can restore your life by giving you salvation and the forgiveness of your sins. Christ died on the cross. He experienced hell for sinners. He paid the penalty for sin. The penalty was eternal judgment. He's already taken that. He commands you to repent of your sin and to turn to him and place your trust in him alone for your salvation. I I urge you to do that. Today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow. He may depart tomorrow. If he's tugging at your heart today, then respond today. If you'd like to speak to one of our pastors about this, then I invite you to come up as we close the service. Come up and just talk to me and I'll put you in touch with one of our men. Our Father, we thank you for this different passage of scripture, but we thank you that it is in the Bible. We thank you that it is real, it is true, and Lord, thank you for what you did for this man so many years ago, and you have revealed it in your word. May we take note of it. May we not come away, Lord, being too focused on Satan, but focused on you. We need to understand about Satan, but we don't need to major on him. But we do need to major on you, so I pray that you will help us, those who know you, to be encouraged, that you have the power over all the realm of darkness. And for those who don't know you, I pray, Lord, that they'll be terrified, not in the negative sense, but terrified in the right sense, that they'll realize that there is no hope for them apart from faith in Christ. So, Lord, draw them to yourself as only you can. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.